0: Hi, welcome to the Physionic Podcast. My name is Nicholas Verhoeven. If you're not familiar with who I am, I'm a PhD student in molecular medicine. And I have my master's in exercise physiology, and I've been doing some cell biology, basic science research for a number of years now. And this podcast is dedicated to learning, well, really, Physionic is dedicated to learning about the human body. So today's topics... Again, if you're not uh, used to this format, if you're new here, uh, I have timestamps for everything that I'm going to be talking about, and the topics for today are going to be involving the dreaded coronavirus, uh, as well as talking a little bit on a study that I released on YouTube, or content on this particular study that I released on YouTube. I'd like to discuss that a little bit, in which... Uh, Researchers just looked at sleep and its impact on hunger. Uh, Another topic that I find really interesting is a new contraceptive technology that's kind of going through its different phases in terms of clinical trials and things of that nature. So that's something that's going to potentially be out on the market at some point in the coming years. And the final topic is the impact of weed, ganja, the devil's lettuce on uh, having kids, the impact that it has on children for uh, women who smoke weed. Okay, so with that said, let's jump into the first topic, which I'll just go ahead and jump into the coronavirus. So the... (laughs) I'm assuming you've heard of the coronavirus, but uh, the coronavirus is a virus that just came out of, I believe, China, uh, based off of everything that I've read and listened to, and kind of came out of nowhere, and it's a little bit like the SARS virus, which was uh, kind of a scary virus that happened uh, several years ago, Uh, but this is kind of a new iteration of a virus that's essentially scaring, well, the entire world half to death. And I wanted to address it in terms of just learning a little bit more information from it um, and really comparing it to the flu virus, which is what most people typically are concerned with, you know, year after year when they're not concerned about a uh, spontaneous virus like this coronavirus. So based on the current information that I have in front of me, which is current up to a few days ago from when this releases, uh, there's almost 76,000 people that have been infected in the Chinese city of Wuhan alone, uh, which is a lot. It seems like a lot, but when you look at numbers like that, you need to understand that there's something called an absolute number and a relative number. Uh, It's like in weightlifting. If you Weigh 150 pounds, and you lift 400 pounds, uh, compared to a person who's 280 pounds and they lift 400 pounds. Your relative strength is much greater. So, in absolute terms, there's 76,000 people that are infected, and maybe it doesn't really matter that much. But in relative terms, that's all, That's less than a percent. Less. Let me repeat that. It's less than one percent. Of the entire population of just that city so it's it's certainly infected a quite large sum of individuals uh, but in terms of it actually being incredibly transmittable where it ends up uh, infecting an entire city it doesn't seem like it's uh, as bad as what a lot of the media uh, have sort of portrayed however even with that 0.7% of the total population of the city being infected, that's still a sizable amount, 76,000. So the, the issue with the coronavirus specifically is that it can be transmitted in the what's called the incubation phase. So when you are infected with a virus, you don't know that you have that virus for about 24 hours, 48 hours, something along those lines. I'm sure it varies from virus to virus. And it's essentially during that period that the virus will uh, begin to replicate. So it goes into your cells, or in particular cells, and then it there's all, all a slew of different types of viruses. If it's if it's a bacteriophage, if it's a if it's an actual uh, regular virus, if it's a uh, I don't even know all the different classifications like hexo hexo gognol virus or something like they've got all these different classifications for how it's packaged, uh, how it's created its capsid, which is a um, like a protein coat that goes around the DNA or the RNA that's that's uh, in that particular packaging, which then gets injected into the cell itself. And then the cell uh, against its will, of course, if a cell had a will, uh, ends up using that material to create more of the virus but I haven't looked into any detail on coronavirus on exactly how it functions, what kind of virus it is. Uh, I just, I didn't have time and I really didn't care that much. I just wanted to quick, uh, briefly discuss it, talking about how it is transmittable during the incubation phase. So for, again, those first 24 to 48 hours, when you're not aware that you have the virus, you could still be spreading that virus to uh, other people. So, the immune reaction of, oh, I think I'm sick, that doesn't play in until later. And then you're still, you can still spread it. But by that time, you're thinking, okay, well, I need to separate myself from the public. Hopefully you're doing that and you're washing your hands and you're taking all the necessary precautions. So that's really the, the, the big, quote unquote, scary aspect of uh, the coronavirus, the fact that it can spread without any symptoms. Uh, one more thing I wanted to say on it is by comparison to the flu. Uh, let me pull this up real quick. So I was looking at some of the statistics. Again, on the on the other hand, it feels like you have some news outlets that are saying it's it's essentially like. Uh, resonant evil virus and it's just spreading across the globe and we're all going to die from it or you have other news outlets that are like yeah okay the coronavirus oh big deal whatever but what about the flu you guys keep forgetting about the flu get your flu shots i mean you should get your flu shots but uh then they start throwing out numbers like uh, the flu kills or not kills but Infects millions of people or hundreds of thousands of people, and the coronavirus has impacted such a small number of individuals. Uh, So far in the U.S., have been around 15 million illnesses and more than 8,200 deaths. But I don't think that's just from the flu. Maybe it is. No, I don't think it's just from the flu. That's from. uh, I'm reading off of an article that I've got in front of me. So, it's. Clearly, the flu has affected more individuals than the coronavirus has. No doubt about it. Nobody really overreacts about the flu like they do with something like the coronavirus. That makes sense because, one, we don't know that much about the coronavirus. We don't know if it's if it's it mutates very easily, we don't know if how how quickly it trans uh, transmits. Is it only transmitted by uh, sneezing, coughing? You know, what, there's all kinds of information that we don't know that much about. But with the flu, even though we have different iterations of the flu, and that's why they take their best guess at kind of the top three or four for for this year, we still have some idea of how it works essentially and even so the recommendations to avoid both of them are shockingly enough they're the exact same so if you don't want to get sick wash your hands uh, repeatedly as in like if let's say you go to the gym you know don't don't ever touch your eyes uh, try not to stick your finger up your nose Anything that's going to be an inhalation or some sort of exposure to a wet surface on your body, don't put your hands in your mouth. (laughs) I mean, it's pretty simple. And avoid people that are coughing, like blasting hot air straight into their vicinity. Uh, And when you shake a person's hand, fine, but still don't touch your eyes. Uh, don't stick your no- your finger up your nose. Don't put it in your mouth, and uh, wash your hands. It's pretty simple. I I know for myself. I whenever I go to the gym, I make sure I don't touch my uh, my face, or I try not to. At the at the very least, uh, I usually try to use my shirt or something to 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 wipe something if I'm if I have some sort of itch. And then the first thing I do when I get home is wash my hands. (coughs) So that is a bit of just general virus advice. So anyways, back to this comparison between the flu and the coronavirus. The coronavirus has, or let me start with the flu. The flu has killed 0.05% of individuals that have gotten the flu. There's a lot of similarity in terms of the symptoms between coronavirus and the flu, which makes sense because a lot of these viruses are gonna do the same thing. Because it's not the virus necessarily it's gonna dictate, although it's more the location of the virus, as well as the immune reaction that you have to it. So of course you're gonna have a general reaction like a fever, you're gonna have coughing, sneezing, you're gonna have cold symptoms, things of that nature. So that's kind of on the mild end, and then of course on the most extreme end, it's fatal. And that has always been true for the flu. So the flu, and this is why I wanted to talk about this, because you, again, you have these two extremes of one side is saying coronavirus is just going to murder everything, every living sentient being on planet earth. And uh, on the other hand, you have news outlets that are saying, yeah, well, okay, coronavirus is all great, but we need to be focused on the flu. We always need to be focused on the flu. That's not news. You know, trying to downplay it by saying we have f- far more flu cases, that's that's almost always going to be the case because the flu is just that prevalent. It just happens. It's always there. So, of course." you're go- going to have hundreds of thousands, if not millions of flu cases. And with a brand new virus like the coronavirus, you're not going to have that. That it's just like, it's just like logic. That's it. So anyways, but the, the coronavirus, the only concerning part of the coronavirus is that uh, it kills, it has a kill rate of about 2.2%. So it's substantially more deadly than the flu, based off of the limited information that we have from the coronavirus uh, as it stands now. Now, granted, they have mentioned, and this makes sense for all viruses, that if you have some sort of infection, if that's coronavirus, flu, common cold, whatever, it, rhinovirus, norovirus, whatever it might be, you're going to have mild symptoms if you are young, healthy, uh middle-aged, healthy, like if you're just generally healthy, you you could probably get the coronavirus and come out perfectly fine on the other end. The people that should be mostly concerned are people who have compromised immune systems, individuals who are older and on the really young spectrum as well, are people that just generally don't take care of themselves and they have a lot of immune issues. Those individuals might have enough of an issue where you would seriously want to consider uh, being as precautious as possible. Although, frankly, I think that everybody should be uh, precautious about, well, any sort of virus spread, regardless of if it's lethal or not, because I will be so pissed if you get me sick by coughing in my face. I do not take well to that. (laughs) Anyway, I've ranted about the coronavirus enough. Uh, just my point being it's somewhere in the middle. Is it going to spread across the world? Probably not. Is it going to kill millions of people? No, it's not. Does it kill more? like if if you have a thousand people and a thousand people and one thousand people get the flu and one thousand people get coronavirus, which group will inevitably have more deaths? It's the coronavirus. So in that way, it's sort of scary, but it still doesn't kill very much, not to diminish the deaths of people who die from, from any disease that's, I mean, of course, atrocious. Okay, so the next topic is, uh, well, let me jump to this contraceptive technology a little bit because this is just a kind of a freaky thing. I I am not a woman, but... I would, I don't, I mean, oh man, I'm telling you, I, I will be posting a picture of what it looks like. Uh, (laughs) it's not a pill. Uh, I will, well, actually I guess technically it is a pill. I'll explain that in just a second. So I'll, I'll post a picture of it on Instagram. So if you want to check that out, you can, uh, my Instagram handle is located at in whatever platform you're consuming this podcast, YouTube, whatever it might be. Uh, so check it out. It is kind of a scary looking thing. So this new contraceptive technology essentially takes, and you may or may not be familiar with how contraceptives work, at least hormonal contraceptives work, but which is the most common type, but you have the release of particular hormones to essentially uh, stop the whole uh, 28 or 30 day cycle. it depends on, on, on the woman. Um, you have you can have a short cycle or a long cycle. I'm not going to get into it. but the bottom line is that you have hormones that go off at particular points in the cycle, in the menstrual cycle, and these different contraceptives just manipulate the hormones so that uh, you don't, it really uses all kinds of different methods. So I'm kind of jumping around here, but essentially you just drastically reduce the chance of pregnancy because of these changes in these hormones, which have a series of different physiological outcomes on the uterus, the ovaries, all kinds of different areas, the brain, to be honest, all kinds of different areas. So it changes it. So it makes it extremely difficult to, uh, get pregnant from, uh, from the sex, uh, so this one. Well, in the past, what they've used was uh, the pill. So you took a pill every single day, and then you had like a seven-day. I believe it's seven days. Someone correct me. I mean, obviously, I'm not taking the pill. So, uh, someone correct me if if I'm getting something wrong here. You have a seven-day section where you don't take any hormones to kind of let your body go through its normal. Uh, Cycle the the what it's supposed to be doing. I think maybe some of them go all the way through, and you have low dose amounts of different hormones all the way through. That might be the case as well. Uh, I'd have to talk to somebody who's who's far more knowledgeable on contraceptives than I am on the different versions that there are. However, now they've released a pill, <laughs> and you consume it naturally, and. It gets stuck in your stomach. <laughs> that's how it works so you could instead of consuming let's say uh, 28 days or 26 days or 31 days of pills uh, for each individual day or getting like an IUD or something like that to release hormones, you just take one pill every 29 days apparently that's the way they've got it set up and during that time, The pill, you swallow it. It looks like a pill, a pretty large pill though. It doesn't look like the regular contraceptive pills. And once it gets into your stomach, so to explain some of the physiology or some of the anatomy there, you have your esophageal sphincter which protects your esophagus from the stomach acid. When you get heartburn, guess what? That's that's what's happening. Your esophageal sphincter is getting burned or it's letting a little bit of that acidity in your stomach into your esophagus, which doesn't have the proper lining uh, that your stomach does. And that's why it hurts really badly. And you might even feel like you're having a heart attack because you're talking about HCL. You're talking about hydrochloric acid at one molar. I mean, it's incredibly powerful acid. And the moment moment it touches anything that doesn't have a surrounding layer to protect it, uh, it's going to hurt a lot. So yeah, so that's that's heartburn. So that's the top part of the stomach, the esophageal sphincter. And then you have the bottom part of the stomach that separates. You have another sphincter that, or gateway, if you want to look at it that way, that is closed and separates the bottom of the stomach from the actual intestinal tract. Now this is the intestinal tract is where we actually absorb the things that we consume. So what this does, and it's really freaky looking, I know I've said that two or three times about now, but it really is. Like, I don't know if I'd wanna take this thing if I'm completely honest with you. Not because it doesn't work or anything like that, but because it just looks scary. So you take this pill, it goes through your esophageal sphincter, it gets to your stomach And there it has some sort of system that it recognizes it's in in the stomach and then it unfolds itself and it looks like a freaking spider. And it just traps itself right above the pyloric sphincter. So then it it does not drop into the intestinal tract to then be excreted out the back end. And what regular pills would do is they would just go through esophageal, end up in the stomach, go into the uh, pyloric sphincter, into the intestinal tract, and then just get absorbed. The the hormones that are associated would just get absorbed and they would end up in the bloodstream just like anything else. However, with this, because it sits on top of the, the pyloric sphincter, it's just releasing hormone over time, so over 29-day period. And I think it recognizes like X amount of time has gone by. Don't quote me on that part necessarily. But I do know that over that 29-day period, it slowly releases the appropriate hormones. So only the hormones actually end up in the intestinal tract. And the device itself does not. So it stays in the stomach. And I'm assuming, I mean, I... I it, I would be so hard pressed to believe that it would just chill in the stomach for the rest of your life. Obviously, I think that it probably has some sort of mechanism for it to then fold back up or for it to degrade. Like maybe the, the material is strong enough to hold out for, for a month or two months and then it de- start, starts to really degrade. Maybe it's something along those lines. I don't know how it works. But you have this spider thing just hanging out in your stomach for uh, a month. And then I'm assuming at some point you end up getting rid of it, like you pass it. So yeah, that's the that's the technology. Uh, you could call it technology. Uh, I wrote here for my Instagram post on it. I said in one sentence, To be honest, the thing looks like a little spider once it unravels inside the stomach, so no thank you. And that is where I will leave that. No thank you. Okay, so the next thing I wanted to talk about was uh, having kids and laying off the weed. So that's the way I titled this one specifically, because... Uh, research in this area is pretty, pretty young. There isn't a whole lot. Uh, well, there's been more and more research on marijuana. But uh, of late, this is obviously a complicated topic to to investigate really clinically, because it's not like you can be like, hey, so here's the thing, we think that weed is bad uh, for the kid. So how about you're pregnant, right? How about you smoke some? (laughs) That doesn't work. That's completely unethical. So, we can't do that. So, they did a double model. They used a model of rats and human placental cells, and they just wanted to see kind of an in vitro assay. If you've listened to me before, in vitro means that you're looking directly at the cells themselves. You're not looking at the organ. You're not looking at the organ system. You're not looking at the body. You're not looking at within the body, anything like that. It's literally taking cells out of a subject, or in this case, a rat or a human, and plating them onto a, a literal like cell culture plate, and then just doing investigations on that, doing different treatments and things like that. And then uh, they applied low-dose THC marijuana. I believe maybe, I, I didn't read into it too, too in depth, but uh, they exposed the THC marijuana to, which I don't know if all marijuana has THC, maybe it all does. Uh, I'm just gonna keep saying both of them. The THC marijuana to the cells, and then they found an association, and I'm assuming they did this with the humans, with a past where people had, this is all an assumption, where people had already smoked throughout their life or for a period of time, and uh, they had kids. And then they're able to associate because this is a retrospective. It's not like they're telling these people, hey, could you do this for, could you do us a solid? Could you ruin your kid uh, for, uh, for this experiment? Because again, that's completely unethical, but they can do it retrospectively if people have done it and they reported they've done it, and then they can measure different things. So uh, one of the things that they notice is that there's reduced birth weight, and maybe this is just all done in rats for this particular section. So they, they found reduced birth weight of about 8%. Now, of course, that's gonna change, you know, that's not a set number. It's not like, oh, you smoke THC marijuana, eight percent reduction in body weight. Boom. Uh, you know, it's going gonna, it's gonna to be variable because you're going to have uh, different data points that make up that 8%, but the average was 8%. And more worryingly, however, not the body weight so much, although birth weight is certainly important, they also saw a decreased brain and liver growth, so up to 20% effect. And that's pretty sizable. I mean, 20% effect on your brain and liver Again, I can say a big no thank you to that. And the proposed mechanism that they think is is occurring, now again, this is all preliminary, there's a lot more research that needs to be done, is that THC blocks some oxygen nutrient from getting across the placenta and therefore not getting to the fetus. And they also found that uh, the fetus had Decreased expression of GLUT1, which is a glucose transporter, uh, glucose being blood sugar. Um, while people associate blood sugar with diabetes and therefore it's a bad thing, blah blah blah. It's not. You need it. Uh, your you you die without it. Uh, your brain requires blood glucose, and we have different transporters that allow that glucose to go from the bloodstream into uh, the cells. So there's GLUT1, GLUT2, GLUT3, GLUT4, and I think it goes up to like GLUT7 or 8 or 9. Or they, they keep adding them because they keep discovering different iterations of them. But the bottom line is they all do essentially the same thing. They're just located in different areas. So this one, GLUT1, is a glucose transporter, and they saw decreased levels of it in uh, the fetus. And the implication here is that you get reduced glucose uptake by the fetus, meaning that then you presumably get less ATP, you get less energy, and therefore you're going to see less growth. And that would, of course, fall in line with their idea that you see decreases in uh, brain and liver growth with the application of THC marijuana. So not a great sign. I mean, to be honest, to be completely honest, though, I don't think too many people are thinking, well, let me let me smoke as much as I can while I'm pregnant. So ultimately, the bottom line is even if all of this stuff doesn't prove to be true or all of this stuff does prove to be true, just don't smoke weed while you're pregnant. I know it's a sacrifice, but such is life. And finally, the final topic of today's episode is uh, looking a little bit at this sleep deprivation study. Uh, I released some content on it uh, two days ago when this releases, so check that out for the actual graphs and details and all that. Uh, it's only like a three-minute piece of content, so should fly right through it. Uh, and otherwise, I'll be explaining it right now. So, and one thing that i Uh, that I added to my Instagram post, but I haven't added to the YouTube thing because I didn't, I just didn't see, didn't think it was pertinent Uh, or it it would have just muddied things up. So I'm just going to talk about it here. Okay. So they did this study where they told participants to either sleep only five hours or sleep eight hours. I believe part of this was done in a lab. And Then they measured, they measured a bunch of different things, but the one thing that I focused on was the hunger measurements, and uh, they found that the people who consumed only five hours, so they were slightly, well, you wouldn't, I wouldn't consider that slightly sleep deprived. I get six hours of sleep and I'm dead, so I need my at least seven hours, if not eight, if not nine. Uh, that's when I'm like at peak efficiency when I'm at around eight or nine hours and the people who were sleep deprived with five hours. So just a few hours. And this is, I believe only one or two day, one or two nights that they did this. So it's not like, uh, they're doing this for weeks at a time. It's so very acute, very short term. Uh, they found increases in hunger measured by subjective ratings. So they essentially just asked people, Hey, uh, On a scale probably like some sort of like likert scale or something like that like one through seven one through nine whatever how hungry are you um and they probably had a a variety of different questions so that people couldn't like associate uh just looking at one question and then try like try and manipulate usually you ask a series of questions so that the researcher can can refer back and kind of pull all those Answers together to come to a, a more accurate conclusion, but anyways, it's still subjective. But I thought this was interesting because they did t- they did they asked them several times throughout the day. So they measured uh, at in the morning at like eight a.m. or something like that. Then again at like twelve, and then again at like three, and then again at like seven or eight or something like that. Like yeah, six or seven o'clock. And these people that were sleep deprived said that they were hungrier compared to the full eight hours of sleep uh, when in the morning, but also in the evening. And my big point that I wanted to mention is that we probably can't put too much stock in the morning results because, uh, because With the morning results, the way that they structured the study is that they had people uh, in the eight-hour conditions go to bed like two hours earlier. So they went to sleep and the five-hour conditions stayed up for two hours. And then they also woke up an hour earlier. So that means that they were awake longer than on the back end there. So, you know, let's say they woke up at, at six And they didn't get to eat till 8.30 or something like that, as opposed to the eight-hour condition that they don't have to experience like hunger pangs or anything like that because they're not waking up till 7 or 7.30 or even 8 o'clock. So then they get to almost immediately eat. They have like an extra buffer of them being unconscious before they wake up. So that could play a factor in terms of how hungry a person feels if they're just... Sitting around twiddling their thumbs, and they know that they're not going to be able to eat until later on in the day. So, something to consider. However, then, of course, that all equalizes after the first meal, presumably because then in the evening they were measured again after they'd consumed uh, the same amounts, you know, between both conditions, relatively speaking. And they found that again that was true for uh, at at the evening hour, but not at the lunch hour from from what I recall. So still the results are interesting and they tell us something, but uh, I do wish that they had made sure that the conditions were as equal as possible in terms of the waking time. And that's that. That is this episode, this podcast for the Physionic Podcast. Thank you for tuning in and uh i will catch you next week have a wonderful wonderful day have a good one bye